So again, let yourself sit comfortably and at ease. And this evening, this fall, end of summer, beginning of fall evening, um, will be the last in a series of teachings that we've been working with all summer um, on the perfections of the heart or on our own Buddha nature. Um, And over the course of these months that we've been talking about these qualities, um, which describe in the Buddhist tradition our inherent goodness or Buddha nature and the qualities that we discover in ourselves as we willingly pay attention and listen to the depths of our heart. We've gone through speaking of these as patience and generosity, the loving heart, the heart of integrity, truthfulness, dedication, wisdom, renunciation, and so forth. And the culmination of these inner qualities of one's own Buddha nature in embodying awakening is the quality of equanimity or perfect peace. And I think about it tonight because we are now in this nation hearing the great drumbeats of war. Let us go back to war again. Um, And in the most fundamental way, this continued warfare that our own nation, as a pretty warlike nation, if we look at our history in recent decades, and many other nations of the world, is a gigantic failure of human imagination. That this is the way we still solve our problems between nations. And I wonder why we don't put a good part of our resources, instead of just into the war department, into a department of forgiveness, into huge peace brigades, and even 10% of the money we spend on war, and into the studies of the arts of international peacemaking in a different way. Just as for a long time slavery was considered acceptable in the world, and even though there are still some forms of it, unfortunately, still to be found, it's become much, much less acceptable internationally. Um, It's time for this to be so of war as well. It's clear. Now, from the perspective of our own inner wisdom, from our own Buddha nature, the place of the eyes and heart of peace, we can see all this, all this kind of the activity of greed and hatred and fear of racism and prejudice and delusion and understand how much suffering comes from it and yet within ourselves know that there is another way. That there's another way for us individually in our lives so that we don't have to make war on the people close to us or in our neighborhood or in other lands. And that there's another way collectively. We are invited to look with the eyes and the heart of a Buddha. Passage 
from the texts where the Buddha says, some children were playing beside a river. They made castles of sand and each child defended their castle and said, this one is mine and kept their castles separate and would not allow any mistakes about whose was whose. And when they were all finished, one child went over and kicked over the other's castle and destroyed it. And the owner of the castle flew into a rage and pulled the other child's hair and struck him and yelled, he spoiled my castle and got others to go along and destroy his other castle as he deserved. And they went on playing in their castles in this way, each saying, this is mine and no one else may have it. Keep away. Don't touch my castle. But evening came. It was getting dark and they heard their parents calling and it was time to go home. And no one now cared what became of their castle. One child stamped on his, another pushed his over with both hands, and the tide took the rest of them, and they turned away and went back each to their home. There is a small reality that we can get caught in, and at the same time there is a vast, truth to the cycles of life in the universe that we are a part of. And on the night of his enlightenment, after awakening, the Buddha uttered a poem as the story is told. O house builder, thou art seen at last. The rafters are broken, the ridge pole is shattered. Gained is the deliverance of the heart. The rafters, that is, of grasping and the ridge pole of attachment and craving and clinging. Nevermore shall I build this house of sorrow. Attained is deliverance of the heart. And then the Buddha sat, as the story is told, in a peace that had seen all the things of this world, the joys and the sorrows of this world, birth and death, gain and loss. A peace not of emotional resignation, but of a heart that is seen through everything and holds it in compassion without conflict, without reservation, without refutation. A peace and space of heart in the midst of all things. Read a little bit from this new book that I finished called The Art of Forgiveness, Loving Kindness and Peace, the section on peace. The human mind can create conflict. It can also create peace. To find peace in the world, we must find peace in ourselves. There is no higher happiness than peace, says the Buddha. Within each of us, there is a silence as vast as the universe. We long for it. We can return to it. Yet to make peace, we cannot ignore war, racism, violence, greed, the injustice and sufferings of the world. They must be confronted with courage and compassion. Yet whatever we do, we must not let war, violence, and fear take over our own heart. When the crowded refugee boats met with storms or pirates, said Thich Nhat Hanh, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person on the boat remained calm and centered, it was enough. 
They showed the way for everyone to survive. Peace is born out of equanimity and balance. Equanimity arises in the heart when we accept the way things are. If you expect your life to be up and down, says Lama Yeshe, your mind will be much more peaceful, for that is the way that it is. Praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute are the eight worldly winds, says the Buddha. They ceaselessly change. Embracing both joy and sorrow, our heart can remain tender and wise. Peace is not an absence of change or difficulty, nor should it be confused with withdrawal or indifference. Withdrawal removes us from connectedness, from openness, from love. When we withdraw, we run away, believe that by disconnecting from others we will be safe. This is not true peace. Indifference pretends to create peace, but it's based on not caring, a resignation, a separation fed by a subtle fear of the heart. Our courage leaves us. Indifference is a misguided way of defending ourselves. The peace of the heart is not emotional resignation, but an openness and courage to meet the ever-changing world with the deepest compassion. With equanimity, we can care for all things without trying to control them. Acceptance does not mean inaction. We may need to respond strongly at times. From a peaceful center, we can respond instead of react. Unconscious reactions continue the problems. Considered responses bring peace. With a peaceful heart, whatever happens can be met with our wisdom. Peace is not weak. It is unshakable. So how do we find this peace? The Buddha's teachings, how difficult it is. He makes a few suggestions. The first, he suggests abandoning as best you can your opinions about things. Not that you won't have them, because we all do. But as he says of those who are wise, the wise do not cling to their opinions. And how could anyone touch such a being who does not hold, in, hold on to the resting places of the mind? If you don't cling to your views, it's very difficult to get into arguments about them. And it's not only your own views, of course, but it's the views of others as well. I'd like to read this little story. A furniture company sent this note to one of its customers. Dear Mr. Jones, what would your neighbors think if we had to send a truck to your house and repossess all that furniture that you bought and still have not completed paying for? They got the following reply. Dear sirs, I've discussed the matter with my neighbors to find out what they would think. They all think it would be the dirty trick of a company that that they would not want to patronize again either. Yours sincerely, Mr. Jones. 
we have so many ideas about what other people think of us, you know, and how it's supposed to be. I know it actually when I come to teach Monday nights or other classes or retreats and so forth. Um, after doing it for many years, I'm pretty comfortable doing it, but once in a while I still notice I get nervous if I feel like I'm not prepared well or somehow my inner state isn't clear enough to speak in a way that I feel very um, connected with or assured of. And then I think, well, you know, suppose I'm boring or stupid um, or... And, you know, people find out how little I really know. You know, you know all those things, right? Which is true, of course. And then I give myself a little talk, which is about two sentences long, and it says, you are up there to teach uh, the Dharma. That is the teachings of Buddha that have helped people over thousands of years. And you're not up there to teach Jack. <laughs> And if I remember that, then I go, oh, thank you. <laughs> right, I can be foolish, but it's all right. The Dharma's fine, and, you know, and if you think that I'm not foolish, you can just speak to my teenage daughter, and she will enlighten you about that. <laughs> so we have all these fears and ideas about what other people will think or what we think. And one thing that brings us to a true peace of heart is to see that opinions are just opinions. And whatever view we have, there's another. It's just one angle, one perspective, one point of view. The sense of inner opening or peace, Zen tradition is filled with all these stories. Uh, you know, the, the Zen master, when the army came into town and the general was going to kill him, is the last one in town. General said, brandishing the sword, I'm one who can run you through without batting an eye. Why didn't you run away? And the Zen master smiles and bows back and says, and I, sir, am one who can be run through without batting an eye. <laughs> and the general looks at him and bows and leaves him alone. And it's kind of an extreme, yes, but nevertheless, in your work, in your family, in the world, you are called upon to remember the place of poise, of balance, of peace that is there within you over and over again. As the Tao says, remember this, rest, trust, relax, easy come, easy go, of the words of the Tao, Chuang Tzu, easy come, easy go. I mean, it's not always that way. We know it's more like hard come, right? And even more difficult when your stock goes down a really long way. Um, but in fact, there's something in us that knows that that's not the only way we can be in this world. And even in death, in Zen, the little po the death poems of Zen masters, my body, the, to, to do a proper Zen death poem, you have to pen it on the day that you die. So, one of them. My body, a drop of dew grown heavy at the leaf tip. There you are. Exit, you know, stage right or whatever it is. <laughs> this from Chuang Tzu. 
if a man is crossing a river, I think I'll leave it in the masculine. Usually I change these to be inclusive, but you know how it is. If a man is crossing a river and an empty boat collides with his own skiff, even though he be a bad-tempered man, he will not become very angry. But if he sees another man in the boat, he will shout at him to steer clear, and if the shout is not heard, he will shout again and yet again and begin cursing, and all because there is somebody in the boat. Yet if the boat were empty, he would not be shouting and not be angry. If you can empty your own boat crossing the river of the world, no one will oppose you and no one will seek to harm you. Now it's really important as you feel into this truth, this letting go, the spaciousness that empties the boat as you breathe, it's important to remember that equanimity is not indifference. This does not mean a withdrawal from the world or a not caring. It is rather as we breathe and open the discovery of our capacity to be spacious and honest and wise with all the gains and losses of this world as they are. A kind of fearlessness of heart in the face of the mystery that we all confront every day of our life. It doesn't mean that it will be easy. Here is Zen Master Suzuki Roshi. Suppose your children are suffering from a hopeless disease. You don't know what to do. You can't lie in bed. Normally the most comfortable and safe place for you would be a warm, soft bed, but now because of your mental agony you cannot rest. You walk up and down, in and out, but it doesn't help. Actually, the best way to relieve your mental suffering is to sit in meditation. Even in such a confused state of mind and bad posture. If you have no experience of sitting in this kind of difficult situation, you're not a true meditation student yet. For you haven't discovered that no other activity can appease your suffering. In other restless positions, you have no power to accept your difficulties. But as you sit in the posture which you've acquired through your long, hard practice, your body and mind have the power to accept things as they are, whether they are agreeable or disagreeable. In continuous practice, under a succession of agreeable and disagreeable situations, you will realize the marrow of Zen, and acquire its true strength. There is an inner strength that we all carry, a fearlessness of heart, a trust that is there to be found even in the midst of our difficulties. And whether it's on your meditation cushion or whether it's out in the world standing up for something that you know needs to be stood up for, whether it's Rosa Parks <coughs> staying on the bus, just keeping her seat on the bus. That to me is really the image of the, of the person who takes their seat in the center of this world. Equanimity 
is that spaciousness that says, yes, the world can do what it may, and I rest here like a Buddha in the midst of it all, with the heart open, tender, compassionate, to see all things and yet not fight against them. And when I say not to fight against them, it doesn't mean, like Rosa Parks, that you don't care about the things of the world and go out in your own way to make a difference. But to do so, to really make peace in this world, it must be done from an inner place of peace, the peaceful heart. And what's beautiful is that when we return to this inner trust, spaciousness, breath, openness, when we shift from the small sense of identity, the small sense of self, or what's called the body of fear, and let go of that identity and instead rest in the pure space of awareness, the awareness itself, the equanimity, cleanses, untangles, purifies what arises. Just the balance of our presence lets doubt and fear and pain and confusion come and go as they will, as if to bow to it and say, yes, this too, and here we are still. Here we are, just this. It's just that, ah, the space, this too. It's Sunday or Saturday, or Friday, depending on when your day of rest is. It's the holy day. Equanimity is the blessed day of rest. It's the moment in us, we're caught up in things, and we say, wow, really got caught in that, haven't I? We take a breath, boy, you really got into that one. And then in a moment like that, awareness can change, and you say, wow, I had made a whole big thing of that. All these ideas of how it should be. All these plans for all these other people. Or myself, all these goals, trying to figure it out. It's mysterious. And yes, some things it goes your, sometimes it goes your way. And sometimes it doesn't go the way you think it should. A story from our local wonderful healer and storyteller, Rachel Remen, from her first Kitchen Table Wisdom book. Uh, The last ten years of his life, she writes about this man, Tim's father had Alzheimer's, and he deteriorated to the extent that he was a sort of walking vegetable, unable to speak. He was fed and clothed by others. For ten years, there was no possibility of a conversation. And as Tim and his brother grew older, they would come home and care for their father when their mother was out. One Sunday, while she was out, the boys, then 15 and 17, were watching television as their father sat nearby in a chair. Suddenly, he slumped forward, fell to the floor. They realized something was terribly wrong. His breath became uneven, rasping, frightened, Tim's older brother told him to call 911. Before he could respond, a voice he had not heard in ten years, a voice he could barely remember, interrupted, and out of his father's mouth came these words, Don't call 911, Tim. Just tell your mother I love her when she comes back. 
tell her that I'm all right, and then he died. Now Tim, who's a cardiologist, looked around the room at the group of doctors as he told this story. Because he died unexpectedly at home, the law required we have an autopsy. My father's brain was almost entirely destroyed by this disease, and yet there and yet there it was. Who spoke those words? This man who had not spoken in ten years. Who are we that have come into these human forms that have taken birth? Who are you really, O wanderer? If we look deeply, we see that we're not the thoughts that come and go. We're not the feelings that come and go. We can respect them, but that's not who we are. They're constantly changing. You're certainly not this body. I mean, it was really small a while ago, right? And then it changed. You don't look anything like you used to. Well, then who are we? Maybe we are the awareness itself, that pure consciousness that knows. I mean, if you look inside that knowing, it doesn't really get any older, right? You look in the mirror and you say, gee, she's looking a little older this week, isn't she? I'm looking, he's looking older now, right? It's just how it is. But it doesn't feel that way inside, does it? Do you know why? Because the mind doesn't age. Consciousness itself is outside of time. It is timeless. So who do you think you are? Who spoke in that story? It is so mysterious. And we have our ideas about it. But as they say in Zen, today's satori is tomorrow's mistake. From the Tao Te Ching again. When they think they know the answers, people are difficult. (laughs) When they know that they don't know everything, people can find their own way. If you want to learn how to govern, avoid being too clever or rich. The simple kindness is the clearest path. Content with an ordinary life, you can show all those around you the way back to their own true nature. So simple and so beautiful. So this is the invitation of the Buddhas to step out of the small sense of self, to look inwardly and know that which is unborn and undying, which is timeless, which knows all things and yet which is still and silent, at peace behind them. There's this huge silence always here, holding everything. One of my good friends in San Geronimo Valley, who also for a while was our house cleaner, um, is a great astrophotographer, along with being a wonderful blues pianist and novelist and other things. You know how it is, one of those artists who cleans houses to kind of pay for their other arts. Anyway, he recently went out to the um, darkest place he could find in the state of Nevada and took a big camera and telescope and did a series of wonderful pictures where he first took a picture of the rocks just at sunset so you could get the landscape and then close the camera lens 
and then opened it in the darkest portion of the night and took this particular picture, which is of the Milky Way, but the bright spot in the center is the center of our Milky Way galaxy, that part, you know, the little round part in the middle of the great wheel of the galaxy that has the majority of the stars. One billion stars in this galaxy, a billion of them. Um, and then, if you were to look closely, there are actually a few other galaxies on here, the Trifid Nebula and Andromeda and so forth. Fantastic photos. So you look at this, and then you realize that there are billions of galaxies out there. Astonishing. I mean, any dark night, just go and lie out there and look down into space. Don't look up. Imagine that you're actually lying there being held on the Earth as a big magnet, and look down into it. It gives you a better feeling for really how we are. It's wonderful. And then as you do that, think about your problems for a little bit. You know, I guess I will read for a moment this poem that most of you know because it's so beautiful from Rumi. This being human is a guest house. It's like an old song you get to hear over again. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. And be grateful for whoever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. These are not small ideas but rather the vision of life as a dance of civilizations. We happen to be in the American Empire period, which may be actually toward the waning period of the American Empire. Empires tend to get both more bellicose and in some ways more frightened and more warlike toward the end, or they can. But, you know, civilizations come and go, and there was the British Empire in most of your lifetime. You may remember that. The Brits are doing fine. They don't have all those colonies anymore, and they may be better for that. You know, There was the Spanish and the Portuguese and all those empires. They come and they go. There's this big dance that we are incarnated in and allowed to participate in for a certain time. How can we make it really blessed? In Tibetan practice, they say the real blessings come through your suffering. They even pray, may I be granted enough suffering that the great heart of compassion can awaken in me. Imagine praying for sufferings. May I have enough suffering so that I really learn the the great compassion. That's like the Lama in the prison in Tibet, prison by the Chinese Communist Army, who smuggled a letter out in which she thanked his jailers for the opportunity for their food and for the suffering of the jail, the opportunity to truly perfect his practice.
practice of compassion. Thank you for giving me this chance. Now, essential to equanimity. Maybe I should pause on that one, right? Thank you. What a way to walk through the world. Thank you even for the difficulties that I may really learn compassion. Be grateful for all who come. Greet each guest honorably. Now, essential for equanimity is the understanding that we are not in control. Are you in control of your own mind? Raise your hand if it does what you want. I'd just like to meet this person. All right, is anyone in control of the people who live around them? Please raise your hand. That's a different kind of delusion, right? Instead, there is an understanding of karma, that instead of controlling, things actually have a lawful unfolding. And one of the chants that one does, or the recitations in the great heart of equanimity, is to recite, all beings are the recipients of their own karma. Their happiness and suffering arises from their own actions and not my wishes for them. Very difficult teaching, but an important one. All beings are the heirs, the recipients of their own karma. Their happiness and suffering arises from their own actions and not my wishes for them. Does this make sense to you? It's used as a balance for all the practices of loving-kindness and compassion and tenderness that we've been speaking of cultivating that we talked about last week. One can become so involved in the love of the world that then you want to make sure that it turns out the way that you think that it should. Or you try to control or someone is addicted or, or violent or lost in some way that you, you wish they wouldn't be. And you're so entangled in how they should be. And then there's the recitation. Beings are the recipients of their own karma. We can love them, care for them, wish them well, but their happiness and suffering is determined by their actions and not my wishes for them. So yes, we can have compassion and care as deeply as we can for the things of this world. And yet, in the end, it is necessary to let them go. Just as your own children must be let go of as they grow and change and become independent. And anyone who's tried to cling on to them knows the suffering that it makes. The secret, the secret of life, (laughs) says the Bhagavad Gita, is to act well without attachment to the results of your actions. To do what you do impeccably, beautifully, compassionately for the care of all beings and then to let it go. Because how can we know how it's supposed to be, really? I have this dear friend who was dying of AIDS, and he spent a long time before he died 
telling me how much it transformed his heart, how much he had learned from that. He said, I had to do in this one year while I was dying what I would have had 40 more years to do, perhaps. And it was so amazing for me, and I did it. And it was a kind of grace to be in his presence. The answer to Job, Job is railing against God. And out of the whirlwind, this answer comes. Where were you when I clothed the sky and placed the suns in their orbit? Were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? When I divided the light and set the great orbs? When I set the morning stars to sing together in the sky? When I set the sea with doors to hold it as it gushed forth out of the womb? when I swaddled the earth in clouds, and do you know the seasons of the wild ass and the bringing forth of the young of the falcons when they learn to fly? Incredible poetry in this answer to Job. How dare you say, I'm the one that knows how it should unfold. Or Rumi, who gives voice to the divine speaking through him, I am a sculptor a molder of form. In every moment I shape an idol, but then in front of you I melt them down. The story I've told before of Ramakrishna, this great Indian sage and saint of a hundred years ago or so, he lived on the banks of the river just north of Calcutta, this wonderful kind of ecstatic life that he lived, master and poet. And his prayers were mostly to the Divine Mother. He worshipped the Divine Mother and the Divine Feminine. And part of his prayer was to do her will and that I may know you and see you. And one day, he said, he was sitting by the river there in this kind of deep meditative state, praying to the Mother, and all of a sudden she appeared. And out of the river, the Ganges or whatever river it was, this huge, beautiful feminine form arose, water streaming off her body, long dark hair and dark eyes and great breasts. And as she came out of the water, she spread open her legs and out of her body was born all the creatures of the earth. He could see the earth pouring out of her body. Kind of, he was amazed, his eyes were wide. And then as she looked at him as the fountain of creativity, she reached down and picked up some of the children and placed them in her mouth and chewed on them. And then blood dripped down her cheeks and across her breasts. And she looked him in the eye and then sunk down beneath the waves. And that was his, divi- his vision of the divine feminine. That which creates and gives life and that which also takes it back, of the goddess of the world. We don't get that kind of stuff on TV. (laughs) But it's actually how it is, you know. I mean, look at the 1990s, remember them? (laughs) They're gone. 
completely disappeared. Whatever you were and experienced and knew all the amazing events, they have melted back down as the idols disappeared, gone. And the world is so extraordinary. It doesn't make one tree. It's just say, here's a tree. It makes a billion trees in the forest. Look at this, trees. It makes human beings by a billion. And then, in a generation, gone. And we will be replaced. Extraordinary. And you think you own things, that they're supposed to be permanent? That you possess your body, your ideas, your way? It is temporary. It is, as Ajahn Chah, my teacher, said, it's uncertain. And the Buddha within you knows this to be true as surely as you know your own name. We will be tested. Circumstances change. People we love get sick or die. We get sick. I mean, I remember talking this hospice nurse who was so good with everybody else and then went in for her biopsy and found out that she was the one with the breast cancer. And all of a sudden it was different than taking care of all these other people, which she thought, oh, I'd learned so well how to face death and cancer and disease. And then all of a sudden it wasn't the same anymore. We will all have our heart tested in some way or another. And yet within you is a resilience and an understanding and a spaciousness that has been there since the day you were born, since before you were born, that looks at all this and says, wow, what an amazing world with its tremendous sorrow and its unspeakable beauty given to us every day again and again. As a Buddha, you are invited to breathe and see with the eyes of compassion and the heart of wisdom, to work for justice in this world, and yet know that it is not yours to control. It is yours to offer your best and to remain at peace. The perfection of the heart of wisdom, of equanimity, and all shall be well, says Dame Julian of Norwich, and all manner of things shall be well. It's so heartening to be with someone who trusts, you know, when it's difficult and you're losing it and so forth and you're frightened, and you're worried, and then there's somebody that you talk to who has such a deep trust in life and the unfolding of life and says, yes, it's difficult, and yes, this is the way things are, and it's okay. It will be okay. Like a traveler on a train, we can put down our bags, We can relax our grip and trust in the unfolding of life. Do not worry, my friends. There is a web of life into which you are born from which you can never fall. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality 
tied in a single garment of destiny, says Martin Luther King. The web of creation. And in most deep understandings in this world, this is not your only birth. And you can take it as you will. But it's very likely when you look deeply in the eyes of those who are around you, that not only are they your friends or lovers or neighbors or enemies now, but that you've switched roles many times and they have been your sisters and brothers and friends and lovers and enemies over time and again. And if you don't believe me, just look really deeply in someone's eyes and reflect on it. Who are you really in there? And how long have we been together? The practice of equanimity begins really simply. Resting where we are on this earth, halfway between the stars and galaxies, and that deep inner space of the heart. Sitting quietly, perhaps first just gently breathing with such phrases as breathing in, I calm my body. And breathing out, I calm the mind, like Thich Nhat Hanh would teach. May I be balanced. May I be at peace. And resting in these, inviting the sense of peace over and over, as the joys and sorrows, pleasures and pains, people, animals, days and nights, the news and the silence around the news, love and fear arise and pass. May I learn to see the arising and passing of all things with equanimity and balance. May I be open and balanced. May I have a peaceful heart. As you continue reflecting on this, again, maybe considering those with whom you are entangled and remembering all beings receive the fruit of their own action Their happiness and suffering depends on their action and not my wishes for you. May you be at peace. May you find happiness. May you find the great balance and compassion in the midst of all things. And may I live with this peace and equanimity in this great and turning world. So there is Siddhartha in Hermann Hesse's version, sitting by the side of the river, the end of the story, listening. He was now listening intently, completely absorbed, quite empty, taking in everything. He felt he had now completely learned the art of listening. 
He'd often heard all this before, the numerous voices in the river, but today they sounded different. He could no longer separate the different voices, the merry voice from the weeping voice, the childish voice from the manly voice. They all belonged to each other, the lament of those who yearn, the laughter of the wise, the cry of indignation, and the groan of the dying. They were interwoven, interlocked, entwined in a thousand ways. And all the voices and goals, all the yearnings, the sorrows, all the pleasures, the good and evil, together was the world, the stream of events, the music of life. And when Siddhartha listened attentively to this river, to the song of a thousand voices, and did not bind himself only to the sorrow or laughter, but heard them all, then the unity, the whole, the great song of a thousand voices consisted of harmony. He had at last found peace. Let your eyes close, if you would, for a moment, comfortably. And let yourself think of or remember situations in your life, one or more, that are upsetting difficult. Frightening. And breathing gently in and out of the heart. Breathing in. Imagine you can calm your body. Breathing out, quiet your mind and heart. And let yourself now visualize, imagine, picture any way you can what it would be like, the benefit or the blessings of a peaceful heart in those difficult circumstances. Suppose you could keep your heart open, spacious like the sky, easy and at peace, even in those places and times. Feel the blessing of that peaceful heart. And let yourself know that it rests within you.
May you rest with a peaceful heart. May you find balance and peace. May you have compassion and equanimity with all the events of this world. May you learn to see the arising and passing of all things with the great heart of a Buddha. May it be so. And let's do a little bit of a chant before we go. Just the simple sound that's the summary of the great Buddhist text of 80,000 verses on the perfect wisdom heart that's summarized in 8,000 and then in 800 verses. And this one sound is the sound of perfect wisdom in this text because it's considered the sound, the first and last sound in life, the sound of opening or letting go. It's the seed syllable in Sanskrit, ah. Let's just sing ah for a moment and then we'll go out into this beautiful fall evening. Ah, add harmony, ah, ah, keep it going, ah, 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 Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.